following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. All of us who have children and those of us who have observed children know the propensity of a toddler to begin to want to do everything by himself or herself. I can do it. And they insist then on doing it and doing it their way. Now, sometimes that's cute. And it is part of how a child can grow and development, develop. But it also, you need to recognize, is growing out of an innate sense of pride and self-sufficiency already manifesting itself in little children unless it is abated and put to death by the Holy Spirit will continue to grow and develop into an adult who then is self-sufficient and lives in what I call an arrogant self-righteousness. Now that is a problem. It's a problem all of us have to deal with because we all have this innate pride in us. We all want to do it our own way. We all want to be the, the masters of our soul and the captains of our fate. And so we recognize that even within us, we wrestle with an arrogant self-righteousness that at times causes us to think we have a corner on the truth or to respond improperly to those around us who differ with us or who are suffering. Now that's the problem, as we've noted, of Job's friends. They had this sense of self-sufficiency. They were arrogantly self-righteous. And it's in the context of this self-righteousness that they are uh, attacking Job. We come now to Job's next speech. He is responding to Zophar and through Zophar to his friends. You remember that Zophar has been the most uh, animated and acerbic in attacking Job. He's accused Job of being a bully with his words, just trying to overpower people. He's accused Job of speaking wrongly when he said that he knew right doctrine and his life was holy and blameless. And then he sets before Job a beautiful description of the infinity of God. And also a beautiful call to repentance. But it's what he does with that because all along he's assuming that he knows all the answers. In fact, you remember this humble man called on God to take his side against Job. He had it all figured out. And now he wants God to step forward and to do what these three men had been unable to do. Now Job is responding to that. Let me remind you of the structure of the book of uh, Job because the structure, if you remind the structure, it will help you understand better what the Holy Spirit is doing here. You will look in verse 12, 1. We have the simple expression, then Job responded. Literally, that's answered and said. And what this shows us is that we have a dialogue taking place here. From chapter 3 all the way through the middle of, or the first third of chapter 42, every speech, even the speech of God, is introduced with this simple formula. So and so answered and said. Now why has the Holy Spirit put this together in this way? Well, in the first place, I believe that historically the, the dialogue took place in this way. 
That's why I think that it had to be an eyewitness who wrote this book, either Job or, or Elihu. But it is also didactic. And so what we have are, is, is, is counter uh, statement, counter statement, statement, counter statement. Now, some of you young people maybe are already doing logic and learning to uh, graft a debate, but if you graft a debate, that's what you would have. You would have th these three folks over here, uh, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, and they're accusing Job of these things. And after each accusation, you could take Job and draw arrows. Now, the problem is the three friends, because they have assumed that they know everything, and they've rightly judged Job, basically don't listen to Job. They speak past him. And we'll see this time and time again, reiterating all of their accusations and eventually inventing sins against Job. Now, in that process, in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, they say some remarkable things about God, such as this statement about God that Zophar gives us in chapter 11 about God's infinity, or a wonderful statement about what true repentance looks like. Now, Job, for his part, is not talking past them. And we will pay attention as we, as we continue. We've done this already. Job is seeking to answer their general accusation as well as perhaps particular things that they are saying about him along the way. So here, uh, in chapters 12 and 13, he begins in these first 12 verses of answering Zophar and Zophar, in a sense, speaking for the others. And what he nails down here because of the way that they've approached him, the way Zophar has spoken, is that they are actually speaking in an arrogant self-righteousness. And that's the, the, the lesson that we're looking for um, from the Holy Spirit now in Job's response. And we see the arrogance of the self-righteous leads them to misinterpret the providence of God in the afflictions of the saints or in their own lives. The arrogance of the self-righteous lead them to misinterpret the providence of God in the afflictions of the saints. I'll show you three things by God's grace then from these 12 verses. The arrogance of self-righteousness, the blindness of self-righteousness, and the folly of self-righteousness. Well, verses 1 through 3, the Spirit shows us through Job the arrogance of uh, self-righteousness. Job answered and responded, Truly, then you are the people, and with you wisdom will die. But I have intelligence as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? Now, I trust that as you read these first two words, you recognize that Job now is using a figure of speech that we call irony. He doesn't really think that they have all the answers. He surely doesn't think that uh, God's wisdom is going to die with them. But they do. They do. And in expressing this, uh, this self-righteous arrogance, uh, Job now attacks them by exposing them to actually the, the, the foolishness of what they are claiming for themselves. And so he speaks, truly, you are the people. In other words, you're the cream of the crop. There is nobody on the face of earth that is wiser than you, that has more insight into the things of God than you, that can better read the, the troubles of an of a afflicted man or woman than you, 
In fact, he says of them that they are so wise that with them wisdom will die. They're the epitome. They're the end of it all. And you hear the, the, the wonderful use of irony here. Now, I, we can't tell from the text the tone of voice that Job used here, but I just want to remind you as you read the Bible, and as you yourself at times will be involved with other people, that irony is a proper response for a Christian in the proper circumstances. Think about those glorious, ironic statements that Isaiah and Jeremiah make about false gods and idols. You cut yourself a piece of wood. You, uh, you use it to cook your fire and to warm yourself. And then you take what's over and you make a god and you fall down and worship. His voice drips with irony. Think how Paul, in both of his Corinthians letters, uses irony to defend himself uh, against the, uh, the false prophets. Um, where he uh, uh, deliberately is exposing all of their foolish arguments, uh, attacking them with irony. And this will help you understand Scripture as you read Scripture. But also, there are times um, when in humility, irony is a very good way to deal with someone. Sometimes with your children, it's a very proper way to uh, discipline them. Uh, I've used it in counseling. I remember saying one time to someone, I hate to tell you, but uh, you're not the end of the world. You know, we can do that. And uh, Job does that here. And it's highlighting for us their arrogance. That's what he's doing with this language. They are self-righteous and they are proud and arrogant in their self-righteousness. Now he goes on to demonstrate why he would say that about them. He says that he really knows as much as they do. He says, I have intelligence as well as you. Now the word intelligence here is heart. He's not simply saying, I know what you know. He says, I have wisdom. I have a divine intelligence. I have a, a divine wisdom. Thus, I'm not inferior to you in what you know. Now notice, he doesn't claim to be superior to them. He simply says, you're saying nothing new. You're saying nothing that is not known to the church, as he goes on. Who does not know such things as these? Now again, it's not usually useful for us to defend ourselves in this manner. But remember how Paul used this in 2 Corinthians 2.5. Uh, as in Corinth, these shadow apostles were uh, around him trying to... Uh, uh, overthrow his ministry, claiming their superiority from the Apostle of Jerusalem. What does he say? For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. He didn't say he was superior to them. But here he, it, he is compelled to say that his apostleship is equal with them. And there's times when, when personal integrity or, or God's truth is at stake that such things uh, might need to be asserted by us. And remember that what they are doing here is in fact uh, really reflecting Satan's accusations. Uh, because Satan had said to God that he only serves you because you pay. And they're saying, Joe, you're a hypocrite. And you've been enjoying God's blessings for what you get. And now you're getting what you deserve. And so it's both for God's integrity and his own 
and this truth that he's wrestling with, why do the righteous suffer? That he says, basically, I don't know the answer yet, but I know as much as you know about this. And you're applying it wrongly to my case. And then he, he makes an appeal. Remember earlier that one of his friends had appealed to, I think it was Bildad, the wisdom of the ancients. Well, Job says, not only, I'm not inferior to you, but who does not know such things as these? Now, the such things as these would be God's infinity, his perfect justice, his sovereignty, these things that have been reflected in the speeches up to this point. And what Job is saying is, this is simply the common knowledge of God's faithful people. There was nothing superior in what they had come to say or understand about God. It was, in fact, what the faithful that lived in Job's days, the faithful who lived around these men, who, they, these were all converted men. In addition to Job, I mean, having a reason not to think that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar were converted, I think the end of the book shows us that they were. But it's basically, this is very interesting. This was common knowledge of the church before the church had revelation. And this common knowledge is basically, for the most part, what we teach now in our confessional standards, what we call Reformed theology. And what's sad is, this was common knowledge way back then, and is uncommon knowledge today. How many people, Christians, people saved by God's grace, who will spout off that God is not sovereign, or God didn't want this thing or that thing to happen, or God didn't you know, know this, or God allowed it because he saw it was, it was going to happen. What was common knowledge then is now rare knowledge in our day. The confession of Nebuchadnezzar could not be made by the great majority of Christians around us. And I think he was newly converted in Daniel 4, 34. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth as no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? What a glorious confession from the mouth of a, a man just born again out of paganism. And how rare such a confession would be today in the lips even of many who claim to be ministers of the gospel. And so we, we see what spiritually dark times we're in. We see why the church is in the situation that she is in. But th that brings to the second thing here, and that is we must not fall into the very error that Job is exposing. If you know more than your Christian friends about God or God's sovereignty, why is that? Because of God's grace. There's nothing innate about you and me that would have caused us to come to a superior grasp as we read the Bible of God's infinity or sovereignty or, or justice or whatever. Whatever light 
God has given to us has come to us by his grace, which should humble us and make us thankful and not boastful or prideful as we respond to those around us. We must be careful because we've come to more light that we don't apply what we've come to, that we have perfect light in every situation. There are what I would call secondary or, or tertiary truths. We'll, we'll come to one of the, an illustration of this later in our text this morning, um, where you know, we think we have all the answers. It might be a millennial question. It might be on education, homeschooling or not homeschooling, or public schools or not public schools. It might be on, on uh, uh, politics. Uh, areas that, that in those areas, every one of us here probably feels very strongly. But we have to recognize that there'll be sincere Christians who will not agree with us and will feel as strongly about their position. So how do we interact with them? Like Job's friends? Or do we come alongside? Prayerfully communicate, listen, respond. No, we don't want to respond in arrogant self-righteousness. We want to be humble. This is important in our marriage, particularly, I think, for us who are men. Right emphasis on a proper biblical patriarchy. But our wives are partners. They're not slaves. God has made them partners for us, not just to cook our meals and wash our clothes, but to help us with counsel and guidance. And we must learn to listen. Husbands to wives, wives to husbands, and particularly men do not respond with any kind of arrogant self-righteousness to your wives or your children. I see this time and again, not here, but time and again. And I see the disastrous results that come from that. So uh, here, uh, Job rebukes them for their arrogant self-righteousness, shows exactly the basis of his rebuke. But he continues now by showing the blindness of what they're doing in verses 4 through 6. I'm a joke to my friends. The one who called on God and he answered him, the just and blameless man is a joke. He who is at ease holds calamity and contempt is prepared for those whose feet slip. The tents of the destroyers prosper and those who provoke God are secure whom God brings into their power. Job first exposes the blindness of what they're doing by trying to show them how they're treating him. You, you see, he says, you're mocking me. That's, that's really what he's saying. He said, um, I'm a joke to my friends. Literally, the Hebrew is, I am laughter to my friends. The man who called on God and he answered him, the just and blameless man is a laughter to his friends. Now, he's referring to what they're saying about him. They're claiming that Job has to be a wicked hypocrite because of the extent of his suffering. And without any reflection, with very little sympathy, particularly as the uh, discourse goes on, they simply are holding him up to ridicule. And, and that's, that's what he is, is saying. And, and, and the, the hurt is that these are friends. These were not enemies. These were men, you remember why they came in the first place. They came to comfort Job. But because of their self-righteousness, because of their uh, theology, they were blind to what they were doing. 
They didn't realize that they weren't comforting him because for them comfort means he had to repent and they weren't helping him repent because they couldn't show him of what he needed to repent. And thus, these friends who come alongside to help merely are increasing the temptation. Every accusation from these friends is simply Satan saying, deny God. You see what your friends think about you? What your wife thinks about you? You know what God must think about you? What you must think about him? Deny God. Now, it was all the more painful, this mockery, because it attacked him at the very level of Confidence and conscience. Confidence and conscience. You see, he says, they have they've mocked me, the one who called on God and he answered him, the just and blameless man is a joke. In the first place, in his conscience, he knew that what they were saying couldn't be true and they should see it because he was a man of prayer. And he knew that God had answered his prayers. They then would have known that God answered his prayers as God would have answered their prayers. So you're mocking a man who has lived in dependence upon God. And a man who God listens to and, and hears his prayers. And then his conscience is, agrees with what God said. The just and blameless man is laughter. This was God's declaration about Job. And yet they are saying of this man, whom God said is just and blameless, that he is a wicked sinner. And they're throwing one stone at him after another, holding him up to open contempt and assault and insult. They aggravate this, Job says, their blindness in verse 5. He who is at ease holds calamity in contempt is prepared for those whose foot slip. Now, some of you will have the New King James or King James Version, and there you read these words. Uh, and that is, a lamp is despised in the thought of the one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. Now, that's a pretty big difference in translation, isn't it? Between a lamp is made ready in the New King James and the one who is at ease holds calamity in contempt. This is one of those areas that either translation, it can be absolutely correct. Simply because you have two Hebrew words. The word for calamity is three letters with a preposition we would call an L put in front of it. The word lamp is those three letters with L added to it, which it is in the Hebrew. So spelled in exactly the same way. So it can be with respect to calamity, or it can be a lamp. And this would be an area that we uh, would have our reasons for which translation we would take, uh, but not, again, any arrogant self-righteousness. Now, I hold to the ESV, the New American Standard, because of the context. That second phrase of that verse is prepared for those whose feet slip, or as it says, uh, is made ready for those who feet slip in the New King James. So what I believe the text is saying here is that here are these men who are at ease. So he, he thinks now of their, their security. You know, they've not suffered like Job. They've lived in the fatness and prosperity of God's goodness all of their days. They, they've not known the calamity of, of family trials that Job had, of loss of children, 
of attacks and murder and robbing. And surely at this point, they've not known the darkness of God who's turned his back on them. They are in a sense of security. And because of that, they hold in contempt the calamity, the trials that have come on Job. And basically are saying then that these are the things prepared for those whose feet slip. And so from the distance, they've not entered into his suffering. They've had no, no sympathy with his trials as obvious from their speeches. And they hold him up to contempt because of his affliction. They say, and he deserves it. His feet are slipping. And you can see how much worse this, this mockery was with respect to Job. I don't hold with the adage that uh, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt, hurt me. Probably some of you don't either. You've been hurt by words. You know, the body heals for the most part. But sometimes the heart doesn't heal very easily, does it? And in the simple sentence here, you see the, the depth of, of Job's suffering. Now, in addition to everything else that Job is suffering, here he is suffering the assault, the mockery, the ridicule of friends holding him up to contempt. And of course, think now. Job is a type of Christ. Think how David, in his own experience, who was a type of Christ, penned these things. It is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it's you, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We had sweet fellowship together. Walked in the house of God in the throng. That was David's experience as it was Job's experience. But Job vaguely, David much more specifically, types of Christ. Remember how his brothers treated him in John 7. <laughs> Go up to Jerusalem and prove to them who you are. Or particularly here in this prediction, this typology of David that Judas, a close and familiar friend, betrays him. Now, none of us, I think none of us, would deliberately expose himself to um, such assaults and reproaches and insults undeservedly. And we would long to be free from those things. But just what I want you to, to picture in your mind is that our Savior did this purposefully. In Job's case and in David's case, it happened to them. But in Christ's case... He offered himself. He took the reproaches because he took our reproaches upon himself. Our sin was placed upon him. Our guilt was placed upon him. And for that to happen, he had to expose himself to every form of mockery and ridicule from his closest friends. And then to hang there, the spotless son of God, naked, before the gawking eyes of a hateful and spiteful world. In addition to all that he suffered at the hands of his friends, his enemies to walk by and to curse him and to mock him. But he did that for you and me because he loves us. But understand, he was not made of steel. 
He had a true soul, sinless, but a soul like yours. And the daggers of these reproaches would have pierced him deeply. He was indeed a man of sorrows because he loved you so much, so much. So we see Job's pain, and Job's pain, we see the pain of our Savior. And then he, he finally shows them their blindness. Yes, they were blind to mock the godless man and to make fun of him, but he has this conclusion. This is what they should have known as wise men. The tents of the destroyers prosper. Those who provoke God are secure, whom God brings into their power. He said, look around, guys. Look what just happened to me. All right, here's the savings in Chaldeans. Is God punishing them for their wickedness? Obviously, they're very wicked. They've raped, they murder, they pillage, and all types of, of provokers of God. In fact, the language here uh, perhaps reflects both tables of the law. So in terms of uh, the first line of that stanza, when he says that the tents of destroyers prosper, um, the destroyers who break the last five commandments of God's holy law are prospering. Those who provoke God, the first four commandments, they're secure. Um, in fact, God brings into their hand. That's this idea of bringing into their power. God has brought all their things into their hand. He's simply saying, just stop for a moment. Take off the, the blinders and look around you. The very things that you're saying contradict what we know God has done in the affairs of men. Quit being blind. But you see, arrogant self-righteousness always makes us blind. We can't know ourselves, and we can't know truth, because we don't know God, and we've not humbled ourselves before Him. Which brings us into the last thing. We've seen the arrogance of these men, the blindness, but now the folly in verses 7 through 12. But now ask the beast and let them teach you and the birds of heaven and let them tell you or speak to the earth that it teach you. Let the fish of the sea declare to you who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words and the palate taste its food? Wisdom is with aged men with long life is understanding. Now this is a a remarkable statement. This is why we earlier read from Romans chapter 1. Boys and girls, look at this. He, he, he tells his friends to ask the beast and let them teach him. Let the birds tell you or speak to the earth. So he's saying in the first ask, inquire. Uh, the word speak in verse 8 is to meditate. Um, so now how are the birds and the fish and the earth going to teach you anything? They don't have voices, do they? Well, they do. They have a voice in their behavior, a voice in this action. So as, as the, the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. A voice has been given to the sun, the moon, the stars. And so here Job teaches us that a voice has been given to uh, the beast of the earth and the earth itself. Not a verbal, verbalization, but we may read correctly of God's acts in the world. So how do the beast of the earth, how does the earth itself teach us, confirm what Job is saying here? 
in these verses? Well, basically the world is a very, humanly speaking, unjust place. Sweet, innocent animals like sheep, goats, and even cows you know, get eaten by bad animals, wolves and lions. Little fish get eaten by big fish. It's the, you know, the blood, the gore, the evil that exists in the creation by God's providence. But it goes on. And you see what Joe is saying. You, could, you should be able to look at the world around you and understand that the just can be destroyed. The innocent can be destroyed. Because someone is destroyed or abused proves nothing about God's justice against them. He, he says, all the creatures, who among these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? He said, if you could call them into court and if they could speak... Every creature would know by its behavior that this very order, although we know it is God's curse on the creation because of our sin, the very order of the world is under God's hand. And God himself is the one who orders and who reckons the death of these animals, as he says, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind, that all the creatures are in his hands, those that devour and those that are devoured and all men those that suffer those that do not suffer it is all under the hand of God and so he appeals now to again the wisdom of men does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food he's saying look this is the palate that's your taste buds boys and girls can distinguish between bitter and sweet or, or salty peppery or whatever, your taste buds can distinguish between all these tastes. He's saying your ear, not your physical ear, but your spiritual ear should be able to look around you and distinguish truth and deliver you from the folly of this self-righteous arrogance that is yours. Because wisdom is with aged men and long life is understanding or discernment. And again, he talks about what the men of the earth would have observed. How in Job's day they would have been wise as they were born again. They would have been wise because they would know God through the creation. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He clearly reveals himself in the creation. His divinity, his divine attributes. And unless that is suppressed, people come to that knowledge, but only the born again will come to that knowledge. But what Job is showing us here is, is that there is truthful revelation in creation. We call that general revelation. And what I want you to note is that there's a complete continuity between general revelation and special revelation. There's not a disjunct there. What God reveals in creation is true. That's what we see here, isn't it? And we can read much about God and what we see. Now, general revelation is never equal with, nor does it trump special revelation. That's what people do today with respect to creation or things like that. No, Calvin said that the Bible are the spectacles by which we read general revelation. But when we read it carefully, then there is a complete continuity. And we should thank God for the fact that his fingerprints are everywhere. 
And this is another reason why boys and girls, we want you to study well. Because everything you learn about this world that God has made, and all the subject matters connected with it, are ways for you better to know God and to see Him and to serve Him. Because this is important truth. And so what the Holy Spirit shows us here then, uh, as I said earlier, is that the arrogance of the self-righteous leads them to misinterpret the providence of God in the affliction of fellow believers. Now again, boys and girls, as I said, when you're young, you like to have your self-expressions and your independence. And I want you to understand the danger of that. I want you to learn to submit humbly to your parents. Not insist on doing it your way, having your way, thinking your thoughts, because God gave you your parents that you might become wise. And so quit arguing and learn to listen. And let each of us then learn first properly how to esteem himself or herself. Let us seek God's grace that we would not be proud and arrogant. Now, if there's anyone here this morning unconverted, this is who you are. I've just described you. You're arrogantly self-righteous. You think the world ends with you. You think you got everything figured out. And you're fine. And God's fine with you. Or you say, well, here's the God. I'm fine with him or whatever. And you're going to live your own life. But you understand you're blind. You're blind because you're spiritually dead. And you're foolish. Because the one who holds all life in his hands, as we sang in those psalms, holds your life in his hands and he will destroy you in hell forever if you cling to your arrogant self-righteousness. No, you must humble yourself in repentance and take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. But all of us, as God's people, must also humble ourselves daily. Put off that remnant of sin that's yet within us of our arrogant self-righteousness. Do not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to esteem others more highly than ourselves that we might truly uh, live together uh, in the body of Christ. And then let us not look down on those around us. And it's easy. You look at a church that, well, they're just not growing, you know. They're, they're just small and tiny and we jump to the conclusion that, well, they must be doing something wrong. You see what's wrong with that? You're assuming that something's wrong because they've not experienced some spectacular spiritual or physical growth. No, if something's wrong, it'll be evident. But to jump to that conclusion is wrong. Or with a family that's suffering. Perhaps they've got a child or two that's in spiritual rebellion. And we tend to be just like Job's friends, don't we? They must be doing something wrong. We tend to do ourselves that way. <laughs> we have one that does that. And we must, uh, must wait on a gracious and sovereign God. And we don't jump to these hasty conclusions. Let us pray. Oh, holy God, we bless your name that you, um, you explain to us so clearly in your word who you are and how we're to serve you. And you humble us, Lord, and humble us by these words that we have here that we might truly... Um, I love you and serve you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.